You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There's yet a few minutes to spare before starting, and the time is occupied in one of the most impressive religious ceremonies I have ever witnessed. The brigade stood in column of regiments. As a large majority of its members were Catholic, the chaplain of the brigade, Reverend William Corby, proposed to give general absolution to all the men before going into the fight. Father Corby stood upon a large rock in front of the brigade. Addressing the men, he explained what he was about to do, saying that each one could receive the benefit of the absolution by making a sincere act of contrition and firmly resolved to embrace the first opportunity of confessing their sins, urging them to do their duty well and reminding them of the high and sacred nature of their trust as soldiers and the noble object for which they fought ending by saying that the Catholic Church refuses Christian burial to the soldier who turns his back upon the foe or deserts his flag. The brigade was standing at order arms, and as he closed his address, every man fell to his knees with head bowed down. Then, stretching his right hand toward the brigade, Father Corby pronounced the words of the general absolution. The scene was more than impressive, It was awe-inspiring. And while there was profound silence in the ranks of the Second Corps, yet over to the left the roar of battle rose and swelled through the woods, making music more sublime than ever sounded through cathedral aisles. I do not think there was a man in the brigade who did not offer up a heartfelt prayer. For some it was their last. They knelt in their grave clothes. Major St. Clair Mulholland, 116th Pennsylvania, Irish Brigade, 2nd Corps, Army of the Potomac. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 352 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, with the last episode, we started to talk about the epic fight for the wheat field on July 2nd, 1863 at the Battle of Gettysburg. Some of the most intense combat of the entire battle took place there. And yet the bloody struggle for the wheat field remains one of the least understood aspects of the Battle of Gettysburg. 
no doubt because it's one of the most complicated and complex parts of the battle. The combat here in the Rose Wheatfield would ultimately involve the soldiers of at least 10 different federal brigades from three different corps and those of six Confederate brigades in all. So that means more than 20,000 men were engaged in a life-and-death struggle for the possession of those 20 acres of ground. It's estimated that by the end of the day on July 2nd, an astounding six to 7,000 of those men had been killed, wounded, or captured during the fierce fighting for that one piece of ground on the southern end of the battlefield. As you guys know from the last episode, the battle for the wheat field began with that Confederate attack by Tig Anderson's Georgia Brigade. By the end of the last show, Anderson's attack had been repulsed by the Federal defenders, by the 17th Maine behind their stone wall, and by the other Yankees on nearby Stony Hill. By utilizing Stony Hill as a strong point, the Union soldiers could cover the 17th Maine's flank and pour a deadly crossfire on the Georgians in the bog below. But Tig Anderson realized that though Stony Hill couldn't be approached from his sector of the Confederate line, it could be approached by units from the next rebel formation to the north, that is, by Confederates from McClaw's division. So Tig Anderson gave the order for his Georgians to fall back to the west edge of Rose's Woods, near the Rose Farm buildings, and as his men reformed and rested before having another go at the wheat field, Anderson himself went to consult with officers of Joseph Kershaw's South Carolina Brigade, which was the right brigade in the first line of McClaw's division, to talk to them about what could be done about Stony Hill. Unfortunately, no one recorded what passed between Tig Anderson and the South Carolinians. Anderson returned to his own brigade down in Rose's Woods, where a lull had settled over the battlefield, but where skirmish firing was still lively enough that the Rose farm bell was ringing every so often as stray bullets struck it. You know, there are certain pieces of the story of the battle that have always particularly stuck in our minds for whatever reason, and this random clanging of the Rose farm bell being struck by stray bullets is one of them. It was noticed and mentioned by a federal officer who said during this lull in the fighting he could hear the bell's, quote, melancholy ring. Anyway, just thought we'd mention that. Ask not for whom the bell tolls and all that, right? Right. In any case, another skirmisher's bullet struck Anderson in the leg shortly after he returned to his lines. He was carried off the field and commanded the brigade passed all the way down to a lieutenant colonel. Tig Anderson's visit to Kershaw's South Carolina Brigade to seek help solving the problem of Stony Hill is significant because, truth be told, McClaw's division should have joined the Confederate attack long before that point in time. In fact, Joseph Kershaw's brigade should have led McClaw's division into action by following just to the left and a few hundred yards behind Robertson's Texas Brigade. Had that been done, the 17th Maine could never have inflicted 
that galling flanking fire on Robertson's left regiment, the 3rd Arkansas, and if the 3rd Arkansas hadn't been held up by that flanking fire, Houck's Ridge would almost certainly have fallen to the Confederates a good 30 to 45 minutes earlier than it did, with significant consequences. But Lafayette McClaws was waiting together with James Longstreet back on Seminary Ridge, and Longstreet, for reasons best known to himself, kept his left division idle while Hood's men struggled and died along Houck's Ridge and in the valley of the West Fork of Plum Run. About 5 p.m., Longstreet finally gave his permission, and Kershaw's South Carolina Brigade advanced with a parade ground precision that showed it was a splendidly drilled formation. Kershaw's men were even closer than Anderson's had been to the massed Union guns in and around the peach orchard, so the South Carolinians had to run a gauntlet not so much of shells, but of the far deadlier canister. One South Carolinian remembered, quote, the awful, deathly surging sounds of those little black balls as they flew by us, through us, between our legs, and over us. Kershaw directed half his brigade to veer to the left, directly toward the quarter-mile-wide space of open ground between the Peach Orchard and Stony Hill, where nothing but closely-ranked Federal batteries perilously held the line without infantry support. It took nerve to march toward the muzzles of those enemy cannon that had already strewn the open fields with broken rebel bodies, but the South Carolinians' iron discipline held firm as they continued to bear down on the batteries, while the Union gunners frantically loaded and fired charge after charge of double canister. Then, when it looked as if the assault would be successful, a garbled order sent the well-drilled South Carolina regiments wheeling directly across the fronts of the batteries, and the Federal guns pounded them to pieces. That meant the left flank units of Kershaw's brigade were out of the fight for the time being, and as Joseph Kershaw himself would later write, quote, Hundreds of the bravest and best men of Carolina fell, victims of this, this fatal blunder. However, while Kershaw's left regiments came to grief in front of the Union gun line, the right of the South Carolina Brigade moved past the buildings of the Rose Farm and straight toward Stony Hill. Ready to have another go at the wheat field, Anderson's Georgians, now minus Anderson himself, advanced alongside Kershaw's men. Once again, the summer stillness of Rose's Woods and the West Plum Run bottomlands exploded in the crashing rattle of hundreds of muskets and the booming roar of cannon, accompanied by the yells, screams, cheers, and groans of those who wielded them. At first, the results of the Confederate assault were the same. The 17th Maine clung to its stone wall as tenaciously as ever. The defenders of Stony Hill the rest of de Trobriand's brigade and two small brigades of the 5th Corps fought hard and held off Kershaw's South Carolinians. As the combat intensified, several members of the 3rd South Carolina's color guard fell killed and wounded. Someone shouted to Color Sergeant William Lamb to lower the flag and make a less conspicuous target. 
But Lamb held the colors high and yelled back, This flag never goes down until I am down. Then, however, just when it looked as if the defenders of Stony Hill might drive off Kershaw's attacking rebels, the fortunes of battle shifted with surprising swiftness. You see, the two small 5th Corps brigades helping to defend Stony Hill belonged to the division of James Barnes, who was nervous about the quarter-mile stretch of ground empty of Union infantry between his position and the peach orchard. His worries increased when he saw Kershaw's hard-charging South Carolinians moving against both Stony Hill and the Union gun line. Taking counsel of his fears, Barnes ordered his division to withdraw, leaving de Trobriand's lone brigade to try to hold Stony Hill and the wheat field against the combined Confederate forces of Anderson and Kershaw. After pulling back, Barnes redeployed his division again some 300 yards to the rear, where things seemed safer. De Trobriand's Federals put up a good fight, but they couldn't hope to hold on where they were, not once Barnes pulled his troops back. To the pressure from the rebels in front was soon added that from Georgians and Texans moving north up Houck's Ridge after driving off Ward's brigade of Federals. Realizing he couldn't hold on alone where he was, de Trobriand gave the command and his brigade fell back. Kershaw's South Carolinians overran Stony Hill, and Anderson's Georgians finally swarmed over the stone wall they had assaulted so long in vain and surged out into the by now badly trampled rose wheat field. As y'all recall, Ward's and de Trobriand's brigades belonged to David Burney's division, and Burney realized that his division's defeat endangered not just the rest of the Third Corps line, comprising the position of Humphrey's division up in the Peach Orchard and along the Emmitsburg Road, but Burney realized his division's defeat also endangered the whole federal fishhook line of defense there south of Gettysburg. Help was on the way in the form of the rest of the 5th Corps and a division of the 2nd, but for the moment the victorious Confederates threatened to sweep across all the ground between the Peach Orchard and Little Round Top, severing Vincent's and Weed's brigades from the rest of the Army of the Potomac, and beginning the rolling up of the federal line that Robert E. Lee had intended all along. The only Union soldiers remaining in the wheat field were Captain Winslow's Battery D, 1st New York Light Artillery. Winslow's gunners stood as long as possible in the wheat, but with their infantry support now gone, and with the Confederates closing in on them from three sides, Winslow called up his battery horses and ordered a retreat. Bernie needed something to check the Confederate advance until federal reinforcements could come up, and he seized upon a regiment that was retiring from the battle in good order, looking as steady and full of fight as ever, the 17th Maine. Bernie sent the Maine men charging back across the wheat field and back into the cauldron of fire and blood they had just left. The 17th went in with a cheer and sent their old foes from Anderson's brigade scampering back out of the field. The Mainers then took up a position at the top of the ridge of high ground that ran through the middle of the wheat field and fired down on the Georgians, who crouched behind the stone wall at the bottom of the field, the same wall the Georgians and Yankees had fought over for the past hour. 
Bernie also ordered another of De Trobriand's regiments, the 5th Michigan, to join the 17th Maine in the wheat field to try to hold off Kershaw's South Carolinians pressing forward from Stony Hill. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Bernie had sent the main outfit and their Michigan friends back into the wheat field in a desperate attempt to check the Confederate advance, but it seemed to be too little too late. However, just when it seemed the South Carolinians' advantage in numbers and position might crumple the 5th Michigan and leverage the 17th Maine out of the wheat field at last, the tide of battle took another sudden drastic shift. The tide of battle took another sudden drastic shift as new federal troops arrived on the scene, relieved de Trobriand's weary men, and advanced to meet the Confederates. The new Union troops made up the division of Brigadier General John Caldwell, a part of Hancock's 2nd Corps. A 30-year-old schoolteacher from Maine, Caldwell had enlisted at the beginning of the war and risen rapidly in rank. A popular and capable officer, Caldwell commanded one of the most renowned divisions in the Army of the Potomac. It had been Winfield Hancock's before Caldwell took over, and Israel B. Richardson's before that. All three men were tough, aggressive officers who had infused the division with spirit and discipline. It had broken the Confederate line at the Bloody Lane at Antietam and performed with astonishing valor before Marie's Heights at Fredericksburg. When the fighting began on the Union left on the afternoon of July 2nd, Caldwell's division was waiting at the southern or left end of the Second Corps sector near the middle of Cemetery Ridge. Almost immediately, Caldwell got orders to join the fight and actually marched the division a short distance to the left before it was recalled to its original position. Apparently, someone further up the chain of command assumed at first that the Fifth Corps would be sufficient reinforcements 
to bolster Sickle's precarious position. Caldwell's men, however, were experienced soldiers, and knew, as the roar of battle grew and spread to the south of them, that their turn would likely come soon enough. One of Caldwell's brigades was the famed Irish Brigade, five regiments of Irish Americans from New York, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania. No braver troops ever shouldered muskets in any army, but their conspicuous valor had cost them such high casualties in previous battles that their numbers now were scarcely those of a single good-sized regiment. As the men of the Irish Brigade, along with the rest of Caldwell's division, waited, with combat clearly imminent, Catholic chaplain William Corby asked their commander, Patrick Kelly, if he could give the brigade general absolution. Kelly agreed and called the troops to attention. Corby stepped to the top of a three-foot-high boulder and raised his right hand. The men knelt and removed their caps. Seeing that scene spurred Lutheran chaplain John H.W. Stuckenberg of the 145th Pennsylvania, a part of Colonel John Brooks' brigade, to do something similar. In peacetime, Stuckenberg had been a pastor in the 145th hometown of Erie and had known many of the regiment's men and their families. Now he asked the regiment's commander, Colonel Hiram Brown, if he could hold a brief worship service for the troops. Brown, like Patrick Kelly, readily agreed and had the men called to attention. Stuckenberg made, quote, a few remarks, end quote, and then led the men in prayer. The chaplain later recalled how, quote, the occasion was a very solemn one. It was the last prayer in which some of our regiment joined. When the order came down from me to Hancock to send a division from the 2nd Corps to support the hard-pressed Union left, Hancock dispatched Caldwell, and Caldwell moved his men quickly to the scene of the fighting. Realizing he had no time to arrange his division in its accustomed attack formations, Caldwell instead rapidly threw his stacked-up brigades at the rebels, who were threatening the wheat field in Stony Hill. In no time at all, the fighting was raging hotter than ever across the bloody wheat field. Caldwell's four small brigades totaled somewhat fewer men than the original combined strength of Anderson's and Kershaw's brigades. But Caldwell's veterans went in hard, determined to not just halt, but drive back the advancing Confederates. Colonel Edward Cross's brigade, on the left of Caldwell's line, struck not only Anderson's Georgians, but also rebel troops from Benning's and Robertson's brigades, who had moved north up Houck's Ridge from Devil's Den. Never one for long-winded speeches, Cross simply told his men, Boys, you know what's before you. Give them hell. Cross soon fell with a bullet in the stomach and mortally wounded, but his men pushed the Confederates back into Rose's woods and held them there. In another of those goosebump-inducing battlefield premonitions that you read about happening time and time again in the Civil War, here, all day, Edward Cross had had a feeling that he wouldn't survive the upcoming fight, 
and soon after his brigade had set out, Hancock had galloped up to the hard-fighting colonel, promising him that this day would earn him the star of a brigadier general. No, general, replied Cross, this is my last battle. And it was. Meanwhile, on Caldwell's right, Brigadier General Samuel Zook's brigade and Kelly's Irish brigade converged on Stony Hill. Kershaw's South Carolinians fought back fiercely. One of Zook's men wrote of how, quote, We rushed at a double quick boldly forward into the mouth of hell, into the jaws of death. End quote. Samuel Zook was shot down early in this frightful slaughter. Like Cross, catching a bullet in the stomach and mortally wounded, but nevertheless his men and the Irish Brigade kept the pressure on the South Carolinians. Anderson's Georgians, having fallen back to Rose's Woods, proved stubborn to eject from that spot. Caldwell responded by committing his small reserve brigade, commanded by Brooke. Though scarcely half the size of one of the Confederate brigades, Brooke's men provided the crucial extra weight to tip the balance in this sector toward the Federals. Fighting ferociously all the way, Brooke's hard-charging Yankees drove the rebels back through Rose's Woods, across the west branch of Plum Run, and back up the rocky west slope of its ravine. Anderson's backpedaling Georgians then tried to make a stand at the top of the slope on the west edge of Rose's Woods. By this time, Anderson's men were being joined by fellow Georgians from Paul Semmes' brigade, which was one of McClaw's two reserve brigades and that was now committed to action. Nevertheless, Brooks' Federals chased the rebels from that line as well, clear out of Rose's woods and into the open fields beyond. Semmes fell mortally wounded while trying to rally his men. The unstoppable Yankees finally halted at the lip of the ravine, just where Rose's woods gave way to the open fields toward the Emmitsburg Road, and Anderson's Georgians took shelter behind a stone fence another 200 yards to the west. The retreat of Anderson's brigade finally made the position of Kershaw's South Carolinians on Stony Hill untenable. They clung to the hill until they were almost surrounded, but finally had to fall back to the vicinity of the Rose Farm buildings. From the north edge of Devil's Den, all the way up to Stony Hill, almost half a mile to the north, Caldwell's hard-hitting division of Federals had now won back all of the ground the Confederates had taken during the hour of fierce fighting that had started with the first advance of Anderson's Georgians. The trouble for Caldwell now, obviously, was to hold what he had won. Anderson and Kershaw were rapidly regrouping and would no doubt be joined in another big assault by Sims' brigade and possibly by additional rebel troops. To prepare to meet the next Confederate attack, Caldwell consulted with the commanders of two nearby divisions of the Fifth Corps about supporting his own badly exposed units. But neither 5th Corps Commander Sykes nor 3rd Corps Commander Sickles was exercising much leadership at this point in time. Nevertheless, the two 5th Corps divisions moved up somewhat haltingly on either side of Caldwell's troops. But before they could truly settle into their positions, events farther up the line once again impacted the situation in the Wheatfield sector with startling suddenness. 
means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Storming the Wheatfield, John Caldwell's Union Division in the Gettysburg Campaign by James M. Smith II. Don't forget, you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We wanted to let you know that just yesterday we released members episode number 117, which is another Gettysburg story. This one about the arrest of a general by a lieutenant on the first day of the battle. We hope the members of the Strawfoot Brigade enjoyed that story. And speaking of members, a big thank you to all those who have signed up over on Patreon to support the podcast on a monthly basis, including Carlton N., John J., Jeff M., Dana S., Christopher B., Brett P., Karina, and Britt E. And thanks to Ernie and also Kenneth for their recent donations. Well, that's it for this show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.